podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. VAR is the star. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what has been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. I've once again switched the personnel this week, however Carl is leaning from the front once again, so Carl, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, really good Dan, um, another good weekend of football to, uh, to get our teeth into, so um, yeah, looking forward to this one buddy. Well I'm also going international for the first time ever, so we go stateside and that means we've got a new signing, it's Drew Pells and he joins us, well, he joins the ranks this afternoon I guess. Drew, it's a pleasure to have you on board and I hope you're ready to chat all things Premier League. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. I appreciate it. Having a Yank on for the first time, I'm glad to uh, be that representative for the good old US of A. Excellent. Right, before we chat all things football, I'd best do some social media bits first. Otherwise, we'll be talking into the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can on Twitter. That's at DanTracy1983. And like I said last week, the podcast now has its own uh, account, which is at RealFootballPod, and it's unlocked. We're in. So we can actually tweet and sort of chat to each other. So if you want to follow that, that's great. I'm going to try and sort of build a community around the pod and not to try and run out of my own account because things get lost in the sort of the sea of Twitter and all that. So if you want to get on board with this, follow the page, get involved with me, all good. And of course, anything show related, send it my way to either account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And of course, if you like it and love it, leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can also find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing. One which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. And now, if this has grabbed your interest, be sure to visit Loserpool.com and create an account. Because the odds of winning are great, but they're even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? I think we can only really go to the Etihad. And the fact that, once again, VAR has had a huge bearing on the outcome of a game between Manchester City and Tottenham. Now, Carl and I discussed this at large yesterday from a Tottenham sort of slant, so I'm going to give that remit to Drew. Carl, you're going to have to put your Man City hat on. So, Carl, the first question I'll ask today is, does, does Manchester City dropping points at home make it a good thing for the Premier League overall because it shows they're at least human? Or, I guess, is that just a sort of a sense of how good Tottenham can be this season? Well, I think um, what we saw there, wasn't it, Dan? Was, and I think Poch, uh, sorry, not Poch, but Pep said after the game that that is football, the joy of it, that you can have one team that dominate a game so so heavily um, and, and look so dominant, yet actually still not come away with the result. Um, I thought, you know, City looked ominous, didn't they? They looked on fire. Um, and when you consider that that's a performance against probably most people would say the third best team in the league, then it doesn't give, you know, shouldn't really give many others too much confidence. Um, because if they tore us apart like that, then you can only assume that the rest of the league, if they're considered weaker, um, won't have much joy either. I, I do feel there's only one team that probably don't fear City, and that's playing them wherever they are, and that's Liverpool, because I think Liverpool are a team that I think they feel they've got Man City's number. Um, and obviously, if it wasn't for maybe a couple of inches last season with a ball going over the line, that they probably could have won the title. So, 
you know, I think from a Spurs perspective, we've said we were lucky to get away. From a City perspective, it's points dropped. And as we found out last year, you can't afford to drop too many if you want to win the league. So City will be very disappointed. But then at the same time, if you look at all the pluses and from the game from them and the way they've just taken probably you know a top side apart at their home ground, then I think they'll be feeling very confident. And I think a bit like always, Dan, you're sitting there thinking it's going to take some team that can probably put this City team to bed and stop them from winning the title. Well, Drew, in terms of Tottenham, the shot counter will look at 30 efforts to City and three to Tottenham. So many will ask, how on earth do the visitors earn a point from that? For you, is that Tottenham being affected when it really mattered or City not being ruthless when it also mattered, or maybe somewhere in between the two? I think definitely it sways more towards Tottenham taking advantage of their few chances because both of them came, both goals came on defensive airs from City. And if you want to compete with a team that's as good as Manchester City, you cannot ever miss any of your chances. So from Tottenham's side, that was absolutely exactly what they needed to do. So it's fantastic to them. In terms of City, yeah. They definitely are the best team in the league, and this was more an off day that they weren't able to convert more chances, that they were able to get 30 shots and still not come away with three points. So for Spurs, great to get a point. For Manchester City, it doesn't really matter because in this game, you saw they are clearly, without a doubt, the best team in the league. So kind of somewhere in between from from what you said, but definitely for Spurs, got to put a smile on your face, especially with VAR coming to the rescue once again at the Etihad, once again against Manchester City and, of course, going in Spurs' favour. Yeah, I mean, obviously there was a huge bit of luck. I mean, really, let's sort of um, sugarcoat it. We'll get to that in a minute. But, Carl, when you look at sort of Tottenham in their first two performances of the season, they've had only nine shots on goal, but they've actually scored five of them. So that's actually a conversion rate of 55.5% on just on-target shots alone. So there's something to be said for being, I guess, efficient rather than effective in attack. Yeah, obviously, you know, that that's the way, isn't it? If, if, you can just, if you can be crucial in front of goal and take your chances, that's good. I, I think from our view, Dan, as, as Spurs supporters, you know, we, we haven't, you know, we probably haven't got going fully yet. You know, we've got some key players out. So I think we'll grow into the season. Um, but, you know, I've... All Spurs fans would have looked at those first two fixtures and probably thought, you know, we'll get three points because we're going to have a win and a defeat. Um, so for us right now, to, to have played that badly and come away from the Etihad with a point, um, you know, we'll all take that. And it, it's almost like a victory in the end. Um, but I think there's better to come. You know, I think we're going to grow once the new players bed in and settle down. I think once that European window closes and we kind of know where we stand, you know, we've got a, there's a few players looking like they may leave and possibly want to leave. So I, I think we need that window to close and then, you know, we'll start to see us settle down a bit. But all that time, if you can be playing, you know, not as well as you should be, but taking chances and scoring goals, then things are looking good because when it does click, then you kind of feel that you, you should be even more dangerous. I think one thing we can all take from this is that XG as a concept is nonsense because Tottenham's expected goals for that were 0.2 and we scored two goals from two shots on target. So I mate, don't understand where this stat has come. It's the most nonsense stat in football, isn't it, Dan? It when, is. Even when really Sky put up. it on their list, I just think, what is the point of that stat? It's the most ridiculous stat I've ever looked at. And I just think most people probably go, 
what is the point of this stat? Who do we care? You know, expected goals. It's, it's a massive load of rubbish, mate. Now, yeah, it's the wor- it's the worst stat yes, ever yes, because sir. there's absolutely no reason for it. It's like saying, oh, well, you should have done this. You should have won. Well, who cares? That's not the result. That's not actually what happened. It's a nonsensical stat that's just really put out there as a talking point for people, whether it's like us or whether people uh, at the pub or whatever. But there's absolutely no reason for it. It provides no insight, no value, nothing whatsoever. Nail on head, spot on. I like Joe already. Is that... <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I mean, like, if there's ever a game where you could say the stats don't tell the story of a game, then that is the one. But expected goals, it's a subjective value. So obviously, people have created this thing, and it's the the kind of chances you're making, whether you take them or not. And so to have this sort of subjective value of 0.2, I mean, what does that actually mean? Like, you can't just have like, oh well, you played a game of football and you've got more than no goals but less than one. Like, that's just a nonsense in itself. Like, you can't play a game and go, oh, the final score was Manchester City 2, Tottenham 1.5. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not being a Luddite. It's just an absolute bit of nonsense. And I think, you know, from a sort of... When you look at stats, you want... You want things that are... Like, actual black and white figures, you know, possession stats, passing, that kind of thing. It's great. But to have this sort of subjective thing and it's just all these shades of grey, then it's an absolute... Absolute nonsense, but unfortunately... We're, we're probably fine the title gets decided on it soon, Dan. Oh, you know, there, there'll be a year where if everything's tied, well, it, we'll go to expected goals then, and you know, oh, this team should have won it on expected goals. I'd have thought Liverpool might have used that as another excuse last season. Don't say that, Carl, because I think the lawmakers have picked up on a couple of our suggestions before, and I don't, <laughs> I don't want them picking up on that one. So keep, keep, I might have to edit that one out, the final cut. No, I jest. But if XG is here to stay... So is VAR. So, of course, Drew, like I said, it made a huge impact on the game on Saturday. It's in the Premier League. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? You know, whatever your viewpoint, please feel free to expand. Yeah, so I'll give my position on VAR first, and then we can talk about this game. Yeah, sure. I am I am diametrically opposed to v- Or I'm sorry. VAR is diametrically opposed to the game of football. Football is a game about the bigger picture, right? When it comes to stoppage time, ah, uh, three minutes, sure. Let's give them one more attack. Three minutes, 30 seconds, no problem. Anytime a free kick is awarded, it's kind of an estimation of where the foul took place. Yet VAR is trying to find the exact minute details of every call. And so to me, those two just don't mesh well. So I'm not a fan of VAR. With that being said, I do understand we live in a world of VAR, and it's not going anywhere, and therefore there's no point in griping about it, it even existing in the first place. In this game, I do agree with the new law, where anything coming off a hand or an arm will disallow a goal, even if it's not the goal itself, if it's just in the buildup. So I do agree with that. Obviously, Manchester City fans will not like that, because just a few months ago, before the law was changed... It aided Tottenham. So if you're a Manchester City fan, you have to feel aggrieved for that part. But I think the biggest problem with VAR right now is it's stealing the headlines. And I think that's what people don't like. Because no one goes to watch the referee. No one goes to watch VAR. Everyone goes to watch their club, their team, their players compete week in, week out. And when you have the referee, the arbiter, stealing the headlines and becoming the biggest talking point, I think that's what's frustrating people the most. And I think what's even more telling is if you go back to 
the first weekend of the year when Manchester City's goal got chopped off for Raheem Sterling being an armpit offside. IFAB came out and said they will reconsider and look into adjusting or changing the offside rule when it comes to VAR. That, to me, shows how powerful the Premier League is and how far-reaching it is that after one weekend, one call, and IFAB already might backtrack and make some changes. So, for my personal opinion, I would love to see some changes to VAR protocol. Not sure if we're really going to get it, though. Well, IFAB said, I think it was yesterday, they said they're not going to change the handball rule this season, Carl. They said that just because we've had one sort of flashpoint Saturday doesn't mean you can start rejigging the rule book already. So, you know, that doesn't bode well for the rest of the season, really, does it? No, I, I think what we'll find this season, won't we? We'll have a season with a little bit of chaos going on most weeks. Um, and then I think what will probably happen is some of these rules will be revisited in the summer. Um, and then the following season, we'll kind of maybe, you know, refine what's happening uh, and how it's viewed. Um, I think, the, you know, for me, I feel one of the biggest issues with the handball stuff is, you know, and we spoke about this last night, was they need to just make this cut and dried. You know, to be honest... It's not, you know, it isn't really right that, you know, it, it can affect the attacking team, but not the defending team. You know, we said in the first game of the season for Spurs, you know, we have a shot in the box. It hits the Villa defender's arm. It takes the power out of the shot and it goes into the keeper's arms. But because it's hit a defender, it's not going to be reviewed or looked at. Whereas to me, you need to make this rule if it hits a hand in the penalty area right or wrongly, or, you know, men wasn't meant intentional, not intentional, it's going to be a penalty or a free kick. That way, it's black and white. We'll, yes, you'll feel aggrieved still if you get given a penalty against you or a goal gets disallowed, but you at least will be able to accept it was because it hit a hand. But at the moment, I think the fact that it only goes against the attacking team kind of causes some resentment. Um, and I think, you know, we will need to see um, VAR refu- reviewed. I think it should only really be there for what we consider clear injustices. I mean, if you take Sterling's goal in the first week or the Jesus goal, Sterling is offside by, like, what, an armpit hair? Um, and, and those are the sort of decisions where I don't think VAR should be getting involved. You know, it wasn't clear. It wasn't obvious. And in my opinion, at that point, we should just be playing. The incidents that should be getting reviewed are possibly the incidents in the City game where Lamella basically RKO's you know, um, Rodri in the penalty box <laughs> from the corner, you know, and basically says, I'm wrestling you to the ground so you don't have a chance of winning his header, uh, and City should have had a penalty. And those are the things where I think people don't mind seeing VAR step in, where you're seeing something that was, you know, a clear offside or a clear foul, or, you know, was it a penalty, wasn't it? Well, let's just have a look. But some of these offsides and, you know, handballs are going to cause real controversy throughout the season. But I guess the only thing you can try and take away from it is this week it worked in Spurs' favour. But I'll guarantee you at some point soon in the coming weeks, it's going to work against us massively and we'll be feeling very aggrieved. And I think that's going to happen to every fan base throughout this Premier League season until the summer. And we may see some slight changes in. I guess, Drew, with VAR being introduced, I mean, there's been, what, a couple of seasons of trials in the background and all this. It was always going to be launched at some point. Does that mean we were always going to have a difficult first season of all these, I guess, still teething problems that we are witnessing right now? Absolutely, 100%. 
No one ever likes change. And it doesn't just have to do with football. It could be in life, at work, or anything. And anytime you have change, that adjustment period is going to be a little rough around the edges, and that's what we're seeing here. But again, kind of like what I said earlier, I think the fact that it's gone so crazy into the media is because that's the power of the Premier League and how big it is. And I 100% agree with Carl that if... I, I think a lot of people are upset because it's kind of one-sided in terms of handball right now, where it only penalizes the attackers. And it's going to take some trial and error to even get the protocol and the changes in the laws to be either more fair or more to people's liking. And unfortunately, that's the only way to figure it out, is more trial and error, more adjustments, until we can find that right mix that people are happy with. I mean, Drew, I'll stay with you. I guess Pep Guardiola's main umbrage would be the fact that, yes, there was a goal disallowed at the very end, which ultimately cost them two points. But really, when we have VAR in place, it's meant to find the decisions, such as Lamella wrestling Rodri to the ground. That's probably where he's ranking them the more, really, because you're thinking, actually, if we had a penalty, the game could have been done and dusted by then anyway. Absolutely. Watching it live... It definitely looked like it should have been a penalty. And then even watching the replay, it seemed Lamella had both hands on him, around him, not just on his back or anything. So that 100% should have at least been reviewed. Now, the thing that I did like initially coming out of the Premier League was they were setting the high bar for what constitutes clear and obvious and what will possibly then lead to a review. I also think after seeing this weekend they might try and lower that bar just a hair to review calls like that. Because without a doubt, it looked like Manchester City, Manchester City should have had a penalty. Now, I will give one little caveat. There's a slight argument, I don't buy it, but there's a slight argument that Rodri felt Lamella on him and went down a little bit too easily. I'm not on that side of the argument, but if someone wanted to make that from the VAR's perspective... I could see that, and that's why then they decided to skip a review, or an on-field review, and play on. Yeah, because, I mean, really, you're looking at that decision, and unless you're the most superbly biased Tottenham fan, and don't get me wrong, I love a bit of Tottenham bias, and so does Carl, but even we've got to be subjective and admit that was really a penalty. So what on earth is the ref seeing, or the control tower ref, or whatever, for that not to be a penalty? Obviously, Drew, you made a sort of good sort of point of, the reason why it might be considered. But then you're thinking, it's almost as clear as day. Like, Cole, I mean, I was saying a fair amount of expletives at the telly, you know, quite robust industrial language when that happened. I'm sure you must have been the same. Yeah, definitely. I mean, once they, you know, at the time when that happened, the ball was still in play and we're seeing the replays. And I was sat there with my dad saying, well, as soon as this goes out, it's a penalty. There can be no other decision here that as soon as this ball goes out of play and this gets reviewed, this is going to be a penalty, 100%. And then once the ball goes out and you can see Michael Oliver point to his ear as if to say, I've not been told anything, I've not been told there's a check, you are kind of sitting there thinking, well, wow, you know, how has this been missed? Because... You know, I would assume those are the sort of decisions people are going to want to look at. You know, anytime someone goes down in a box where you're thinking there may be a pull, you know, even if the referee at first kind of gets a quick look and sort of says in his earpiece, no, not for me, 
you still believe that that should be getting reviewed in in you know in the control tower where these these decisions are being made because you know we know the game is happening in split seconds and referees won't always get the best view of something they won't always have the clear you know they might think it was you know a push or a pull and actually when you see the replays you go no it wasn't so I'm just amazed. And that's the kind of decision that I think VAR is going to have to start getting right. Because if they can't get stuff like that right, then it will just annoy fans when these pernickety sort of handball decisions or, you know, these controversial offsides get given. Because you then it's an easy argument to say, well, so you give that, but you don't give a blatant, you know, wrestle in, in the penalty area. And that's where, you know... VAR will need to find and refine itself to make sure that's right, because otherwise you give an easy argument. The only thing we can say for VAR, and if you look at all the other sports that have adopted this kind of technology, I think they've kind of said, you know, it's taken them nearly almost 10 years to kind of refine it and make it perfect for the game. If we look at cricket now, you know, it's done so well, isn't it? You know, you've got Snicko, you got, you know, you can hear what the umpire's talking and you can hear him asking, right, I want to look at this. Can you show me that? And But that's taken cricket a long while to get there, you know, to refine it that well. Um, and obviously you can see it in the ground. I think that's another thing that the Premier League will need to look at is making sure that in the stadiums yourselves, you're actually being informed this is being reviewed because of we think there may have been this, that or that. Um, and then supporters, I think, will get on board fully. But while supporters are being kept in the dark in stadiums, um, you know, you're seeing plenty of blogger videos now where, you know, you're seeing the goal with the cameras at them, but they're going, well, we don't know what, what, what's what's happening, what's happening. And I think that is everything that's going to work against VAR. I'm for it. I think, you know, if it if it's done right and it's done well, then it, it can bring some good to the game. We're just going to have to get there. And I think it's going to be a painful process for the next couple of years, possibly. I think you're right. I mean, fundamentally, I, I sort of back VAR. I think referees need help. And this is what the tool is there to, to give them that help that they need. Because they're almost crying out for it at one point. But yeah, we're going to get a lot of pain first. And I think... that, That's the other thing as well, Dan, isn't it? You know, everyone right now is jumping on the back saying, no, oh, this is rubbish. You know, this is rubbish. But they were probably all the people before moaning, saying referees need help. You know, the game's moving too fast for referees. Well, we're trying to help now, but it will be painful. Okay, that's enough VAR. I think there might be a little bit more VAR later on, but that's enough of Etihad VAR because we're going to move on. So, almost 24 hours later, and the homecoming party for Frank Lampard's Chelsea was ruined by Leicester. So, Carl, once again, the West London outfit were on top for large spells of a game, but not scoring in those patches proved to be their undoing. Yeah, started really well, didn't they, Chelsea? You know, really came out of the traps and were looking good and created lots of chances where they could have put Leicester to bed um, within that first half. Um, but then as the game went on, and obviously especially after half-time, Chelsea kind of just dropped away a little bit um, and you could maybe see some tired legs from that, you know, Super Cup final came in to, came in to tell. And obviously Leicester kind of couldn't play as badly as they did in that first half. Um, and obviously they started getting on top. And then, it, you know, if you look at chances by the end of the game, Leicester may feel they should have come away with all three points in the end. But I think this is what we'll see. You know, Chelsea, it's going to take Frank a little while to get in there and get them playing the way he wants. They've 
they've still got some big players to come back. You know, Loftus Cheek is is going to be huge, um, and Hudson Adoy, who I really like, I think he's going to be a real big player for Chelsea. Um, they need to get him back, um, and obviously, yeah, you know, it will take Frank a little bit of time, but you know, I think you know they would obviously before the game would look into think that's the sort of game they should win. Afterwards, they'll probably go. Well, actually, it, you know, we we ended up coming away luckily with a point. But I just think that was probably you know a midweek hangover as well and some tired legs that, that cost them. But they started really well, so maybe there's some signs there to be encouraged about. Okay, Drew, a bit of a sort of deeper dive into Chelsea for you now. So obviously, once in DD level proceedings, it almost felt like Chelsea's heads had gone. I think obviously Coles just sort of intimated about tiredness as well, which was a factor. But yeah, James Madison blazing over the bar. If that's goes in we're discussing two defeats from two so as a Chelsea fan what's been your assessment of the season so far feel free to include the Super Cup in your assessment as well it's been a really rough start for Lampard and Chelsea and really there's not too many positives to take from any of the games I would say the Super Cup was the best performance by far but in the in the Premier League in both games Lampard has been outmanaged at halftime both times against Manchester United, they came out much better in the second half and were able to stop Chelsea from creating anything going forward. And then, of course, they took advantage of the defensive mistakes and frailties. And then you saw the same thing against Leicester this weekend was in the second half. Yeah, guys are tired. I get that. It's the third match of the season of Chelsea's 11 against Leicester. Only one of them played in a summer tournament, and that was Christian Pulisic, who got subbed off on 70 minutes or whatever it was. So I don't really buy into the excuse that they were tired. Instead, Brendan Rodgers and Leicester did a much better job of finding spaces between the lines, and then, of course, Jamie Vardy was causing havoc for the defense. They didn't know whether to step up with Chelsea's press or if they need to track Vardy's run uh, and you know not try and play the offside game with him. So... Lampard has a lot of learning and experience to gain right now because he's been outmanaged both times in the second half in the league. So for Chelsea, I don't think this bodes well whatsoever. I think they haven't really looked that sharp. They don't really have a proven goal scorer up top. Yeah, Olivier Giroud is good at helping his teammates, but around him, can you really expect Christian Pulisic to score 20 goals this year? No. Can you really expect Pedro and William to score 10 goals each? That's a lot to ask from them. So, And the same thing with Tammy Abraham. Yeah, he was great in the championship, but is he going to be able to lead the line as effectively as you need for a team seeking to finish in the top four? I just don't see it. So I think Lampard's got a lot of things to fix in training. I think Chelsea have a lot of things they need to improve on, and it's probably going to be a really tough season for fans like myself and other fans as well who are not going to enjoy Chelsea finishing for what I think is out of the top four and out of the top six this year. Well, I was going to ask about the top six in a minute. So that's a very interesting take you've given, especially as a Chelsea fan yourself. But I'll stay with you, Drew, because in terms of Lampard's appointment, is there a sense that he's almost set up to be the full guy in what is always going to be a difficult season? Or can you see the board actually giving him time and the time he needs to get through this difficult rut? That's not to say he gets a free hit. You know, let's say if Chelsea are 15th and you think, oh, okay, it's fine because it's this strange season we're in but you know if you do finish seventh or eighth is that going to be enough to get a second season will there be enough credit in the bank or is that you know one one and done thanks for your work Frank but we're going to get a bigger name in now no because I think if they wanted to kind of throw someone under under the bus for a year 
it would have been Maurizio Sarri, especially with how upset the fans were with him last year. In terms of Lampard, I think he will get the season. I mean, short of brandishing a gun at Cobham, they're not going to fire him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, results, results can go bad, but I mean, that would be quite the... Uh... Exactly. I just, I mean, he's the golden boy yeah, at yeah, Chelsea, yeah, and, and for good reason. I mean, he, a fantastic player, club legend, absolutely. So I don't think there's really any reason or any way that they're going to fire him. Now, you're right. If they if they're in the relegation zone come December, then maybe we have to reconsider. But I really don't think he he has to worry about his job. And I think that's one of the reasons he's going to stick with youth, even if they struggle. Tammy Abraham, Pulisic, Mason Mount, who had a fantastic goal to begin the game. But if any of these guys struggle adapting to the Premier League, adapting to the pace, the speed, and all of that, I think he's going to be able to stick with them because unlike any of his contemporaries, I don't think he has to worry about getting the sack this year. So even if they struggle around 7th, 8th, whatever it happens to be, I think he'll keep his job. And based upon these two games, he and Chelsea don't look like they will compete for those top four spots. They got thrashed by one top four team, Manchester United, and then they barely hung on for a point against a team, Leicester, that they're going to battle for those last European spots. I mean, Chelsea are in the realm right now of Leicester, Wolves, and Everton. In name, they're a big six club, but this year, I don't think they're going to play like one. Well, that's quite a damning indictment, really, when you think about it, Carl. But also, in terms of the club in general, will fans, obviously this includes Drew, and I'll ask you your sort of counterpoint in a minute. Carl, will fans be concerned that Roman Abramovich has, I guess, lost interest for a number of reasons? Part of it, he can't get a visa to come to the UK, but there's also, you know, just the length of time he's been the Chelsea owner, the money that comes with it, the fact they can't build a new stadium. So all those things combined, are Chelsea in danger of sort of slipping behind their big six rivals? You know, Drew sort of just said it could happen as quick as this season, but if it does happen, could that then be a period which goes on for, you know, four or five years? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the few Chelsea fans I know now say that they don't think, you know, Abramovich is in love with the club as he was when he first took over. Um, obviously, you know, the, the money being spent and the way they're operating kind of shows you that it isn't that kind of gung-ho attitude anymore where we'll just go out and buy the best players we can. Um, so, yeah, like as you say, you know, it, it kind of looks like he, he's got them and done what he wanted to do with them, made them one of these big clubs. But now it's time to run it, you know, not so much as a toy, but as a business. Um, and as we know, Dan, you know, from our chairman, when it, when it, when the club's being run as a business, you don't go splashing cash and you don't go crazy and you just try to keep yourself above water and make sure you do the right things. You know, um, I think if you're looking at Chelsea, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm surprised Drew, Drew is as damning as he is because I still kind of feel Chelsea would be battling for the top four throughout the season. Um, I don't think they'll make the top four. I think they'll just miss it at fifth. But I still think, you know, they've got a decent enough squad that they should be able to be up there and battling. But I fully get the concerns and fully agree that, you know, I don't think Frank Lampard has got to worry about the sack this year. I think, again, that is another clever decision by the club to bring him in, knowing that, well, we can't spend money. Um, we maybe haven't got, you know, as good a squad to challenge for a title anymore. So who can we bring in that kind of appeases everyone and keeps everyone happy? They've done that. Um, 
I, yeah, I, you do kind of feel that if they suddenly now don't, you know, this, tran- this transfer ban and this season, if they were to slip outside of, say, the top seven, then you could see that, you know, w- will there be that investment there to get them back where, you know, back in within the top two or three of the country? Um, and, yeah, the supporters I speak to do kind of feel that they don't think Abramovich has got that drive anymore. So, Drew, what do you make of Roman Abramovich almost sort of falling out of love with Chelsea? It's unfortunate because he was the guy that turned Chelsea into the super club they were in the mid 2000s and you know all the way into winning the Champions League in 2012. He was the orchestrator of that. Now obviously a lot of it comes down to spending the money that's needed to do that getting players, managers and all of that. But yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that he's not there is a detriment to the club and it's hurt them. And you know, I, I will admit, sometimes I can be overly negative instead of more uh, positive leaning. So maybe that is why I'm uh, as down on Chelsea as I am. Uh, but I will say this. So this was a few months ago. I wrote about on my website, DrewPels.com, and I talked about on my podcast on the counter, is Chelsea definitely have fallen out of the upper echelons of European football. They don't attract the top players anymore like Real Madrid or Now you could say Liverpool, Manchester City. They have the money to do it, right? Roman Abramovich is essentially a bottomless pit of cash. But he hasn't been using it. They missed Europe, or well, they missed the Champions League two out of three years. Last year, they were able to to qualify on two different fronts, which was great. But even this year, it looks like they could definitely miss out on the Champions League again and possibly Europe in general. And so that doesn't bode well for bringing in new players once this transfer ban is over who wants to go to a club that's missed the champions league you know three times in the past what five or six years that it's been so i think that affects uh recruitment and trying to sign the world stars right eden hazard one of the best players in the world just left so chelsea right now isn't the most appealing club for players to go to and i think that's even bigger than abramovich not or abramovich not being there because yeah it's it's great if, if he's there and active and everything but he doesn't really run the day-to-day operations anyways he hasn't so yeah i mean that that's a big factor but i think the fact that they haven't finished in the champions league is what's turning off some of those top players from not wanting to come to west london yeah i think that's a very fair point you make as well right hold those thoughts because we're just gonna have a little break and on the other side of the break we're going to talk more premier league football Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool. Pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win. At Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit loserpool.com. Okay, welcome back. Cole Drew, I hope you're still there. Absolutely. At the end, Ben. Excellent work. Right, okay, so let's um, move on now to Monday night's action. And Wolves, they're a team that are also looking to break the top six glass ceiling. And they've had the second draw of the season, which, you know, not a bad result at all against Manchester United. However, had Paul Pogba slotted home that second half penalty, it would have been a lot different. So, Cole. Missed penalties. They're part and parcel of the game. They are frustrating, but it happens. However, 
To not have a penalty taker strategy and just let the players decide for themselves is something you have to really shake your head at, isn't it? I, I find this one a funny one, though, Dan, because if we look to last season, Pogba was United's main penalty taker. That is true. So yes. you, it, you, it's kind of almost like people are reacting almost as though Maguire took the penalty last night, you know, and it's like, well, wow, what's, it, what's the centre-half doing taking a penalty? Now, Pogba was their successful penalty taker last season. So they haven't had a guy stepping up, you know. If it had been, say, Lingard stepping up, you would go, well, hold on a minute. You've not been renowned for taking penalties. Why? Yeah, and as you say, yes, why are you letting him take a penalty, you know, unless we're seven up and suddenly we're giving out gifts, then this, this guy shouldn't be taking one. Um, but Pogba has, you know, has been the penalty taker last season. So, unfortunately, it was just a poor penalty, um, a good save, poor penalty. Um, but I, I think this is you know, just trying to look for an excuse as to why they didn't get the result over the line. Um, and, yeah, for me, you know, I kind of struggle to see why people are complaining because... Pogba is, you know, was their recognised penalty taker last season. So, you know, it's just unfortunate. You know, it happens. Players miss penalties sometimes. Keepers save them. Um, you know, I think United will feel aggrieved that they probably didn't make more of their, you know, dominant first half performance. So, Drew, this sort of lack of a cohesive idea in terms of who's actually going to be the penalty taker, is this, you know, something that points to a lack of, I don't know, discipline in the dressing room? Or has Ole Gunnar Solskjaer sort of said, you know, here's some independence, sort it out between yourself, and it's then something that's backfired in a massive way. I think it's the latter, because Solshire comes from the Sir, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson era, where the players knew exactly what was expected of them. You didn't really have to discuss. Now, sure, did Sir Alex probably appoint a penalty taker, and therefore there were no questions asked? Yeah, that's probably the case. I get that. But I think also he carried himself and expected the players to carry themselves in such a professional manner that you wouldn't have anything like this. And so I think Solshire has that attitude and he brings that to the dressing room. And then you saw it manifest itself in an unfortunate way against Wolves. But I think that's his thinking here is these are players at Manchester United. They know what they have to do. They know what's expected of them. They know what they need, to, or maybe they don't in reality, but he, his expectation is they know what they need to do to win. And that includes Pogba taking the penalties. Because like Carl said, last year he took all of them, and I believe half of his goals scored, uh, which made him the the team leader, was because of penalties. So it's not surprising, it's not crazy that he stepped up to take it. And plus, I kind of think, if you look in the first game against Chelsea, right, Rashford got taken down, and then he stepped up for the penalty, so this time it's like, oh, well, Pogba got taken down, so uh, or Pogba's coming up. You know, it's his turn. Let's rotate through this. So I think that's really uh, what it comes down to. I don't think it's a big deal because, yeah, guys miss penalties. It happens. And I think the next time Pogba steps up, he won't be concerned and he'll be ready to, to improve upon this one because it wasn't the greatest of penalties. No, it wasn't. I mean, also, it was a decent save. But I think, Cole, I'm looking at Pogba's penalty stats at Man United. He's missed four out of 11 which, when you think about it, is not great, is it? Yeah, I mean, as you say, like, you know, when you're missing those sort of numbers, then you do start questioning, well, actually, you know, is this guy as good from the spot as we want it to be? 
Um, and obviously Rashford did bury a decent penalty in the first game. So you, you would normally say, well, let's stick with the guy who's confident right now. Um, so, you know, maybe that's something that, as you say, Solskjaer possibly today will be having a word with the squad and saying, right, listen, from now on, this guy is the penalty taker. And as I said earlier, you know, unless you're suddenly, you know, 7-0 up in a game where you are then just looking to get the guy who's never scored a goal for the club to actually score one, you don't change that penalty. Um, but, you know, the only thing I think that saves Pogba from last night and, and more abuse is the fact that he didn't do the Ponzi run-up that takes around half hour to actually get to the ball before missing it. You know, he did actually at this time just literally run straight up and take it. But it was a poor penalty. Um, and, and I don't think we'll see the United make that mistake again because it is one of those, you do that once, you end up on the wrong end of it. And then I think you do find a manager steps in at that point and says, right, listen, from now on, this happens and there's no arguments and I don't want to see you guys swapping it around at all. Drew, there was a fantastic equaliser from Wolves, one that was also shrouded in a little bit of VAR, quite a sort of long check. We won't sort of dwell on that, but me and Carl often wax lyrical about Wolves and we're sort of, I wouldn't say we're fans of them, obviously, because we support Tottenham, but we like the football we play, they play, sorry, it's a good brand of football and all that. So, can you envision a time when they're really competing at the very top end of the Premier League? You know, not just sort of in the fringes of the Europa League. Can you see them really going all the way and breaking the glass ceiling of the top four on a constant basis? Sure. Not this season, I don't think, because they've done well in the Europa League qualifying round so far. But I do think those midweek games are going to hold them back a little bit this year because they didn't strengthen the squad all that much. They did go out and get uh, Cutrone which I think was a great addition because they're going to need someone else to rotate up front. So that was great. But other than that, there weren't too many additions. So I think this is going to be a year where they get their feet wet in terms of playing every three days. But if they keep Nuno, if they keep their identity that they have over the past couple seasons that have gotten them from the championship up into the Premier League and then now into Europe, yeah, I can definitely see them improving. If they bring in a few other guys to help rotate in, keep legs fresh, yeah, I think they're probably the most credible threat to move into the top four and at least challenge for that for not just one season, but probably a few more to come. I mean, Carl, Drew makes a very good point about how Wolves didn't really add too much, but you could counter that by saying that their business was so good the season before, they didn't really need to add all that much, did they? No, I, I think, though, again, they was one of those sides, weren't they, where you probably would have looked, you know, they probably could have done with, you know, say, another couple of really good signings to come in to allow you to rotate that side, you know, because Moutinho is getting older now. Um, so, you know, he's not obviously got the legs to run a full season. But I think they're going to look to try and build this year. You know, as, as Drew said, they're going to look to have a European adventure and see how they kind of get on and fare there. Um, and then, you know, they'll try to keep their place in that top six for the Premier League. And we may then find that they look to try and build and become stronger um, the following season. Um, but they are a club that if they get it right, they certainly will be able to challenge the top four in the next couple of years. Right. OK, there's a little bit more Premier League chat to come, but I need to pay the bills. So now it's time to pick our guaranteed losers. Obviously, loserpool.com, last man standing. Carl and I picked correctly last week. Carl, what was your pick last week? Just want to remind us. Oh, God. Who did I go for, Dan, last week? <laughs> oh, I, I can't even remember myself, this to is, be honest. Uh, <laughs> you went for Southampton to lose at Liverpool, didn't you? That's right. I did indeed. Good. I did indeed, yeah. Good. And they didn't let me down. Um, 
This week, then, I think I'm going to go for a Newcastle as my guaranteed loser of the week. You know, a way to top them. I think that is a club that I think at the moment internally, that's a club that's heading towards a big crisis. Um, and for me, a relegation this season. So I'll pick them this week, then. OK, mate. Drew, you get a guest pick this week. The floor is yours. Who's your guaranteed banker loser this week? Well, I was going to go with Newcastle because I, think I agree with Carl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'll pick a different one in a second, but I agree with Carl. Newcastle is in a horrific situation, and they are 100% no questions asked going down. After losing their two uh, leading goal scorers and Rafa, there's no way they stay up in the top flight this year. So I'll pick a different club. Uh, I'm going to go with Bournemouth losing at home to Manchester City. I think Manchester City is going to want to come out guns blazing after having dropped points at home in such a terrible fashion, you know, from their perspective uh, against Spurs. And I think they're going to go out and put a few on Bournemouth and run away winners. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I think Man City have got, they've almost got a point to prove they're quite angry, aren't they, after the way they uh, didn't win on Saturday. So the team that follows that game, oops. So I think, yeah, Bournemouth could be in with a bit of a hiding on that one. So, yeah, good pick. I'm going to go with... Um, well, it's difficult. I'm going to go with Norwich to lose at home to Chelsea. Now, I know they beat Newcastle and Timu Puki's got four goals already this season, but I think if Chelsea need to get this monkey off their back and actually get a Premier League win, it's got to happen very soon, isn't it? And I think, you know, they've been on top for some spells. They need to sort of be on top for 90 minutes. So I think this is, a, although away, I think a favourable enough fixture. So I'm going to go for Chelsea to win away at Norwich. So Norwich is my loser banker. So I'll just recap. Carl's gone for Newcastle to lose away at Tottenham. Drew's gone for Bournemouth to lose at home to Manchester City. And I've gone for Norwich to lose at home to Chelsea. And if you want to play that game, go to loserpool.com. It's free to create an account. And obviously, although we're in week three of the season, you can play free in this pool till September 13th. So don't worry about missing the start. You can still get involved and still win £1,000. So don't forget to play that after this. Right, we've still got a bit of chat to go. So whistle stop tour across the, uh, the rest of the games. Apologies if we don't fit them all in. We've got about 15 minutes or so, but we'll do our very best. So where should we go next? Let's go to the South Coast and we'll go to the St Mary Stadium. So, Cole, it was almost a routine win for Liverpool. Although Adrian had other ideas, didn't he? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Southampton could have nicked that right at the death. Um, and as you say, then all of a sudden, you know, you'd be looking at Adrian as the goalkeeper's kind of like setting in the panic towards the end. And, you you know, you, you can imagine he'd have got a frosty reception in the changing room. But he's managed to get away with it. Um, and they've managed to pick up the win. And I think there again, we saw, you know, some tired legs kicking in towards the very end of that game. But you know, Liverpool have got the job done. That's the, that's been the main thing that they'll be concerned about. Um, and you know, another good performance from Sadio Mane, who's you know, considering he's played a tournament in the summer, he is looking really sharp at the moment. Um, and again, you just you know, you can't see Liverpool you know dropping too many points throughout this season. You know, unless they pick up some big injuries, and that will be the thing that I think scares Liverpool fans the most. You know, you start you know now. You know, the goalkeeper's out. If someone like Van Dijk suddenly picks up an injury where he's out for, say, a month or so, then I think, you know, panic starts to set in a little bit. But if they can keep them all fresh, they'll be there and there again. Um, and again, you know, for me, Southampton, I think they're going to have another one of those years where they'll be in a dog relegation dogfight. Drew, do you have any concerns for Southampton? I know we're two games in, so we love a good knee-jerk here. But obviously, last season, 
an all, I guess not the greatest of escapes, but a, a good enough escape for, for Ralph, Hoos and Hartle. Um, does the hard work start now? Because it's always if the game plan has been found out. Yeah, I think Southampton is going to be in a relegation battle this year. I think, though, there were some encouraging signs because the first half against Liverpool, Southampton did a pretty good job. Liverpool couldn't get control of the game. Liverpool wasn't able to dominate as we've seen them do over the past you know, 18 months or whatever it's been. So I think there were some encouraging signs. And even I thought last year when Hudel came in, I thought he did a pretty good job. So I don't expect them to finish 10th or anything like that. But I think the Saints can be a little bit more comfortable than they have in previous seasons. It's going to be tight, but I think they'll be okay. From this game, I think the most worrying sign is Liverpool's defense, right? You saw this time Southampton was able to to get a, a fair amount of, of play against them. Norwich was able to carve them up a couple different times in the first week. So I think Liverpool's defense, not just because Allison is out, isn't going to be quite as good as last season. I think they've regressed to the mean a little bit after playing so wildly above their heads. And if I'm Arsenal next week and, and any other team coming up against Liverpool, I am pressing Adrian and putting him under as much pressure as I can because there was a, a ball in the first half where the same thing happened. He took way too much time, and I don't remember. It might have been Danny Ings. I don't remember which player pressured him. And he Adrian tried to clear it, but it went off the uh, – Southampton forward or whoever it was so I think Liverpool's got a lot of defensive issues to, to try and figure out actually Carl before I forget this is just reminding me about a foreign manager we need to give ourselves a huge pat on the back because we forecasted Jan Sievert's device at Huddersfield didn't we now I didn't necessarily think he'd go this soon but it looked like he just over his head at the club really arguably for me one of the worst Premier League managers of all time yeah, definitely. I mean, that, we said, didn't we, that it seemed a crazy decision at the time. You know, the, uh, they they had a chance to try and bring in probably a more recognised manager, maybe with a bit of experience that they were going to go down that division. They didn't bring the right man in. Um, and, and the only thing you maybe can praise the club for is maybe they've realised really early that, listen, this guy just is in over his head and he's not going to be able to cope with this. And they've made the decision. Um, it goes against what we normally say, which is, uh, you know, crazy to sack a manager after, you know, just a couple of games. But maybe the signs have been there and there's been stuff seen where you just go, this guy's not going to be able to handle it. And if we've got any chance or, you know, we want to come straight back up, we're going to need to change this and get someone in who can do the job. But yeah, you know, as you say, Dan, you know, we seem to be getting things pretty spot on here at the moment. So maybe more people are listening to us than we think. There you go. So, Carl, I'll stay with you. Arsenal, they won at home on Saturday. And you would have thought that they've seen the second coming of Patrick Vieira at the Emirates with the way people were banging on about Danny Sebelos. Um, I mean, yeah, he played well, but it was Burnley. No disrespect to them. Are Gunners fans hanging their hopes too much on a player who's only going to be there for a season? I mean, obviously, if they've got themselves a good player who's going to do a good job for them and possibly helps them get in the top four and, you know, get back in the Champions League, then fair play. You know, even if they've only got him for a season, that one season could be enough that kind of really does a good job for them and sets them in the right place again. But as you say, Dan, 
when you're starting to pop, you know, champagne bottles in your garden because you beat Burnley at home in the second game, <laughs> I think you've really got to start looking at yourself and, and what your view of the season's going to be. Because I don't see Arsenal have improved in the area that they really needed to, which is defensively. We know they're good going forward. They've never had a problem um, in attack. You know, no one's ever doubted that. Aubameyang, Lacazette, those players would always score goals. Um I just don't see them being able to change what happens defensively. You know, Louise, for eight million, you could say good signing, you know, because he may be better than what they've had. But the pass across the box in the first half kind of shows you what you're going to expect there with him. You know, he will do outrageous stuff like that and it will come and cost you at certain points. And I just think as the season goes on, Arsenal will still get found out for the same frailties that they do each year, which is defensively, they're just not good enough. They'll be in a fight for the top four, no doubt about it. Um, whether they're good enough to get in there, I'm not so sure. I think they're still probably behind us and United right now. Um, but yeah, they won't struggle against the Burnleys at home. But that, that see what happens. You know, it's very early, um, and like I say, you know, posting videos of yourself popping champagne bottles it is just over the top and absolutely ludicrous. And the club should be disowning themselves from anyone like that. Joe, it must be said that Arsenal didn't have it all their own way, did they? I mean, Burnley levelled just before the break. Almost their overconfidence was then their undoing in the second half because they started giving themselves too much time in the ball, and that saw Danny Sebalos pick a pocket of a Burnley midfielder. I can't remember who. Then it led to a fantastic strike from Aubameyang. Gives the Gunners all three points. You know, a win. I guess they all count this early in the season, but I think there's still some work for Arsenal to be done, isn't there? Absolutely. Burnley gave Arsenal a lot of problems on set pieces, corners, and even just crosses from open play. And like Carl said, the defense was the biggest question mark coming into the year. So it's not a shocker from that perspective. I think everyone who watches... Five minutes of Premier League action would know that Arsenal was going to struggle in the back. You know, Arsenal, to me, remind me of like an 11-year-old playing FIFA. Just all-out attack. Doesn't matter what happens in the back. We're going to try and outshoot you and outscore you. And I think games like this against Burnley is what they're going to have to do. They cannot afford to drop points against anyone not in the big six. When they go up against City, Spurs, United... Uh, yeah, they're going to have to battle those games and try and get some points from it, especially at home, right? Like always, you know, win your games at home and then get results on the road. But against any team in the bottom 14, Arsenal cannot afford to drop any points. And so I think them kind of learning how to do this against Burnley, it's only one game, I get it, but kind of learning that structure and what they're going to have to do to succeed this year to get back into the Champions League, I think this is what they're going to have to do every single week. Just outscore teams. Okay, right. I think there's five more matches for us to rattle through, so let's just do this in a sort of really express manner. So, Cole, we're going to split the load, basically. You're going to get a game each in rotation. So, Cole, Everton got the better of Watford. Two clean sheets now for the Toffees, but the Hornets really need to get rid of this FA Cup final hangover, don't they? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, they certainly, you know, after the disappointment of the cup final, you know, they'd had a good season. So they would have gone in hopeful um, and the start really hasn't been encouraging for them. So they will want to get this, you know, this disappointment and, you know, wake themselves up a little bit and kind of stop feeling sorry for themselves. Um, and I guess, 
you know, West Ham at home is another good challenge because that is, again, a side that I think if you looked at them last season, they'd probably think they should be able to beat. So, uh, you know, a third defeat this weekend coming, and I think, you know, there might be some panic start to set in there. And Drew, Bournemouth won away at Aston Villa. It's fair to say that Villa were the masters of their own downfall, although a fantastic late strike from Douglas Louise did give them hope, but not enough. Yeah, I think Aston Villa are going to have a really, really tough time this season. And they did come out firing firing against Spurs, which was great. But then this time against Bournemouth, they went down early and they dug their own grave. And I think they're going to do that a lot of times this year. And throughout the season, it's going to be a real, real tough battle for them to stay up in the top flight. Okay, Brighton and West Ham played out a draw, Cole. One where VAR was once again a major talking point. Yeah, I, you know, I think West Ham would be probably. I feel West Ham will be disappointed because if you look at the way they're trying to progress, you know, in their summer signings, I think really they'd be looking at Brighton as a team they should feel they're beating nowadays. Um, so to only manage to pick up a point there, um, especially after the mauling in the first game, West Ham will be really disappointed and will want to try and get a win as soon as possible because that is a club that really should be looking. Um, you know, to do more than it is right now. Brighton, I think, will will happily take a point, you know, the three, four points from their first two games. Um, I was worried about Brighton um, before the start of the season. I still think they'll be in a relegation battle towards the end of the season. But, you know, that's not a bad start for them. Two games, four points, they'd have taken that. And Drew, Sheffield United's return to the Premier League saw them get the better, sorry, home return to the Premier League saw them get the better of Crystal Palace. A game that once again showed that if you cut off the supply from Wilf Zahar, you stop the Eagles from soaring. Yeah, absolutely fantastic start at home for Sheffield United, right? It's been over, what, a decade since they've been in the Premier League. So this was great for them. And especially coming off the back of stealing a point on the uh, first weekend of the Premier League this season. So I think Sheffield United, they should feel really, really confident. And like you said, they were able to shut down Crystal Palace, well, the one player that really matters in terms of Zaha. But yeah, Sheffield United should be happy with this result. They should absolutely be confident going into uh, the next few fixtures. And they should be licking their chops, ready to try and stay in the Premier League. And finally, I'll do this one. Norwich put the misery of their Anfield trip behind them as they made light work of a woeful Newcastle and everyone will no doubt be now rushing to put Timu Puki in their fantasy teams. So that's it. Right, job done. I think we're just within the hour. So a bit of admin. If you like the show, like I said before, please leave a review. Don't forget to subscribe on your usual platforms and all that. Um, just need to thank my guests. And Drew, I must say, an absolutely sterling debut. Thank you ever so much for your time this afternoon. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I, uh, I'm sure not a lot of shows like to bring on Americans to, to talk about the Premier League and football in general. So thank you, Dan, for, for having me in the first place. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I love talking football with anyone and everyone that I can. Um, and just real quickly for anyone listening, if you like what I said, I do a podcast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, where I discuss the major news and stories in the Premier League, Champions League, and other stuff in the world of football. My show is called On the Counter with Drew Pels. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all of that great stuff. And uh, follow me on Twitter, at Drew Pels. Perfect. And more importantly, would you like to come back at some point soon? Yes, absolutely. Right, we'll put it in the diary soon. We'll talk um, later on. And Cole, of course, you're always in the diary. Um, as always, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed that one. 
Yeah, brilliant, Dan. Thanks very much, Drew. You know, so as, as Dan said, thought you was brilliant there, mate. Um, really enjoyed it and, and looking forward to next week. Excellent. Right. Thank you. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is The Real Football Cast in association with Loserpool. And until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network.